Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Jeff Macalino Podcast. Uh, I'm excited to give you today's episode. We have another uh, different kind of guest, uh, Larry Sprung, who uh, is the founder of Midland Financial. Uh, He also is on the board uh, of a national suicide prevention uh, charity. Um, So... Those are a lot of the stuff we talked about. We talked about finances. Uh, I told him beforehand and during the podcast, I am somewhat intentionally ignorant when it comes to personal finances and what you should invest in and things along those lines. So I learned quite a bit and uh, hopefully you will too. Hopefully you benefit from it. And then we kind of tail into uh, suicide talk, which is kind of a recurring uh, theme sometimes on the show. I've realized, I guess it comes hand in hand with being a comedy-themed podcast, but I also want people to uh, learn, or at least I want to learn, and uh, I will do it publicly, I guess. So, so, uh, learned a lot. Uh, Larry's a a great guy. He has his own uh, podcast. Uh, and then, and then afterwards, we uh, when we stopped the recording, we uh, hung out and talked about hockey for a little bit. So that was a uh, good. Uh, we both own uh, Ryan Callahan jerseys. Mine, of course, is a Lightning, and his is a Rangers jersey. So we we talked a little bit about uh, about the NHL as well. So that was fun. He's a fun guy, and hopefully, you will learn something. Uh, that you maybe didn't know and uh, benefit from his financial wisdom. Uh, Broken record like always, please uh, like, subscribe, follow, whatever is appropriate for the platform you use. If you're on Apple, give me a five-star review and I will give you a hug next time I see you, if you want one. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at St. J. Mac, S-A-I-N-T-J-M-A-C. Like the Jeff Macalino podcast on Facebook and Instagram. I'm also at St. J. Mac if you want to follow me on there for a very uh, subpar uh, Instagram account. I really need to uh, take lessons on how to spruce that thing up. Anyways, without further ado, after this message will be me speaking with Larry Sprung. All right, I am joined by Larry Sprung. Uh, Thanks for coming on, Larry. How are you? Hey, Jeff, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm awesome today. Excellent, excellent. And you are the uh, the founder of uh, Midland Financial. Um, how did you, so just a little background on you, how did you decide to get into the finance world? So I'll give you the, uh, the, the quick version. So uh, I went into college pre-med 
And uh, that lasted a semester after I started figuring out how long I needed to be in school, how much money it was going to cost, and how long it would be before I made any money. And I said, you know what, this isn't for me. So I ended up uh, converting and moving over and becoming a math major. Uh, Unfortunately, I couldn't go into the business school in the university I was at, which was Binghamton University in New York, because it was harder to get into the business school as a current student than it was coming in as a freshman. Mm-hmm. So I converted to a math major, loved numbers. It was something that was uh, came easy to me. And uh, essentially going into my senior year, the summer between junior and senior year, a housemate of mine had an internship at uh, Dean Witter, which I guess I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit for some of your audience because they may not have ever even heard of that. But essentially to them, that's Morgan Stanley these days because they ended up buying Dean Witter. And a buddy of mine had an internship there and he was finishing up and asked me if I'd be interested uh, in taking it over for the summer. And I said, you know what, I'm going to be taking some classes because I had to do a little catching up. And uh, I said, that'd be great. So I got a little exposure there. And then at the same time, I needed to make some money to live on my own up uh, at school for the summer. So I got a job at Denny's, uh, which, quite frankly, lasted literally one hour. I ended up quitting. I was a a busboy slash dishwasher, and uh, I have a lot of more respect for busboys and dishwashers now uh, after that than I ever did because it just wasn't for me. It wasn't something that I could could uh, you know conceivably do. Walked across the street and there was I went I was going to get something to eat a slice of pizza and there was a photo studio and it had a, uh, a sign out that they were hiring. They wanted to hire a salesperson, so I ended up going in. I ended up getting a uh, cold calling job. And uh, I was one of the top salespeople in that office, uh, only working part time. So, you know, after a short period of time between the internship and the finance piece and being able to, you know, be in a sales role where you're talking to strangers and educating them, it, it really meshed together for a great opportunity to enter the financial services field. And that's really all she wrote. I ended up getting a job while I was at college uh, through uh, on-campus interviews and uh, basically uh, graduated. And shortly after that, entered the financial services field, which was back in 1996 and have been here ever since. Gotcha. So you've been... Uh... I mean, since 96, so you've been through some up and downs as far as the market and everything goes. <laughs> You're still <Yeah>. standing. <laughs> yeah, we've been through the uh, unwinding of long-term capital, which was probably one of the first hedge funds that people ever heard of. The uh, dot-com boom and bust of the late 90s, early 2000s, and you know several different events, including you know the Great Recession of 08, and uh, you know most recently the uh, pandemic. So uh, we've seen quite a number of events, or I've seen a quite a number of events in in my, you know, I feel it's a short career thus far because I feel like I got a long way to go. But uh, you know, a lot of events packed into that short period of time. Right, and and I don't know how much you even know about this, but uh, even the most recent crazy thing that brought a lot of attention was the the GameStop and the. What was it AMC? Yeah. Was that? Yeah. yeah. What did you make of that? I mean, was there any takeaway from that at all? Or. Well, I mean, the takeaway is that you know I think that uh, you had a uh, perfect storm, if you will, right? You had a situation where you have a lot of people who who have been 
day trading the market, which is probably not something that I would particularly recommend. I mean, it's basically, you know, the equivalent of going to Vegas and putting money on black or red. And you, you have people that are day trading and they've been pretty successful over the last year because the market's gone up. You know, the question is what happens when things go the other way. And, uh, you know, you combine that with the power of the Internet and power of message boards and, and people talking and looking to, you know, potentially move markets. And it, it's somewhat problematic. It's great if you're the first guy with the idea and originate it and you get in at the bottom and, you know, you, you get up get out a thousand or plus percent later but there are a lot of people that i feel were hurt significantly because they didn't have that luxury got in too high and then ended up selling on the low end of things so you know you have to know what your um risk tolerance is and if that's in your wheelhouse then it might be okay but uh you know that's not something that we necessarily that i participated in personally uh or we would get involved with as a uh, as a firm it's Interesting as uh, I browse Twitter a lot and I have a variety of different follower groups that I uh, latch on to. I've got, you know, uh, Saints fans, Libertarians and a a bunch of comedian things in between. So I get a a, a widespread of things on Twitter and uh, a lot of people talk about uh, day trading. Just I actually as and this you would I'm sure you would say this is a was a terrible idea, but as a test. I threw 200 bucks into a Robinhood account. 200 bucks, not, you know, I'm not a big gambler. <laughs> right. And uh, I just said, I'm going to follow this guy on Twitter and any stock he recommends, I'm going to throw all the money into it. I turned 200 bucks into 600 bucks and then I turned 600 bucks into 400 bucks. So <laughs> it's like you said, sometimes it's black, sometimes it's red. <laughs> well, you know, you know how you make a, uh, you know how you make a small fortune on Wall Street, right? Uh, no. <laughs> you start with a large one. I was going to say, well, if I knew, I'd do it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's so difficult. And listen, when my 14-year-old is calling me up, because my my 14-year-old is uh, as a side hustle, side hobby, if you will, of reselling sneakers, Mm. and he's involved in a lot of Discord and a lot of these chats that are talking about sneakers and and other things. And when it starts, you know, uh, permeating through that industry as well, and he starts coming to me, he's like, Dad, I'm, I'm here and I should buy, you know, GameStop. I'm here and I should buy AMC. So I was going to let him just open up a, uh, a Robinhood account. Unfortunately, he couldn't because you had to be 18 to do it. Uh, but I was going to let him also take 200 bucks because I, I think it's a, it's a good learning experience for people who think that everything goes up all the time. And, you know, for your listeners out there, I will tell you this, people who talk about things going up all the time, what they're failing to tell you about is all the losers that they lost money with. People have a tendency psychologically, we only talk about the winners because we don't want to tell people that we made the wrong decision or, you know, lost money. You know, that's not something we typically want to share. And most people don't share those stories. The stories you hear, it's like, you know, the Facebook effect or, you know, the social media effect when you're you're scrolling in the middle of the night. There are very few bad pictures. You know, everybody's, pic- you know, posting pictures of their latest and greatest. Nobody's posting pictures of their trials and tribulations. Same thing with, 
you know, investments and uh, you got to be careful. So I wanted to give him an education and have him understand, you know, what, what it meant. And, um, you know, unfortunately we didn't have that learning experience because of, uh, he had to be 18 and I was, I can't, uh, open the account in my name cause I'm, uh, limited because right. uh, I'm already in the business. Right. That's, I think, and, and I, I told you beforehand, I described myself as this, but I think much of America, including people who probably try trading, are intentionally, or maybe they're not intentionally ignorant, but they are ignorant to what, how things actually work. Um, yeah. I, I mean, do you think the average person, I mean, what would your advice be to the average person as far as how much they should educate themselves? And uh, if they don't want to educate themselves, what should they do with their money? If that. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's a good question. And, you know, I, I, I will tell you this. A, a lot of the people that you see on social media, TV, radio, etc., cetera, uh, a lot of them, uh, even the ones that don't have any kind of credentials, uh, a lot of times use, uh, you know, terms in absolutes. You know, everybody should be doing this or everybody should be doing that. And I, I think that's a, a disastrous proposition because I don't think anything out there is really great for everybody. You know, it's right for the right person at the right time in the right situation. So to answer your question, you know, if we want to divide, you know, people into two categories, right? You have people who understand or want to learn and educate themselves, and that's fine. And that's fine. They're more do-it-yourselfers, and there are some great tools out there that will help them learn what they need to know, or at least enough to learn what they need to know in order to make smart decisions and not be gamblers. Uh, and there are tools like robo-advisors that if they don't want to have the end decision of what to invest in, they kind of take a risk tolerance profile, get a score, and the robot will uh, basically invest the money for them to whatever their goals and objectives are. And that that's right for you know a good number of people. And then you have the other side of the equation where you have people that – uh, you know, don't have the time, don't want to put in the effort and the energy to learn that and, and be skilled at it. And that's fine, too. And for those people, they really should not go at it alone, because if they're not going to put the time, effort and energy in, you know, it could be disastrous. So for them, it's really important to find themselves an advisor, find themselves a team that can help them and, and allocate those monies. Um, and, you know, you might have people that kind of blend those two profiles together, if you will. You know, we have clients, for example, that, you know, for the lion's share of their money, they don't want to do the learning. They don't want to do the educating. They're busy people. They're busy with their jobs. They're busy with their family. They're busy with their life. So for the lion's share of the money, they turn over to us and we uh, help invest them and help work towards their goals and do their planning for them. And then they may have a small, you know, amount in a side account that is not under our uh, purview that they may be trading, you know, whether it's to educate themselves, whether it's to buy companies that they like, know and love and just see what happens. Or if it's, you know, to take a flyer on GameStop because they can't get to Vegas that weekend or Atlantic City. So, you know, there's uh, there's place for everything and for everybody. And it really depends on the personality of the person and, you know, how deep they want to dive. Gotcha. That's uh, it's it's I'm I'm curious, not that you would know the, the answer to this, because I'm sure there's never been a study. But I am curious how many people out there who who trade just have that kind of gamblers. Uh, I don't want to say addiction, but gamblers attitude, you know, like they don't want to bet on sports. So they'll bet on stocks 
Yeah, I think there's a I think there's a fair amount of folks that uh, you know fall into that category, and I think if anything. You know, if you look at what's happened over the last year, for example, you know, in the pandemic environment, you know, many of these folks who would traditionally go to Vegas or go to Atlantic City or go to OTB or wherever their their betting place of choice is, um, those avenues were kind of shut down to some degree or they didn't feel comfortable going. So they turned to you know, online trading. I think that was an outlet for them in many cases. And you know what, if you ask those people, I don't think they would come to you and say, I'm an investor. I think they realize that I'm more of a trader, I'm more of a gambler and that, you know, I'm taking a chance and hoping that we're making the right decision. I don't think a lot of those people would really try to portray themselves as investors, if you will. Gotcha. Now for, uh, and I told you beforehand, my, my audience is almost entirely uh, reflective of me. I'm 34. My audience is, is like 90% between age 25 and 44. Um, and I think most, I, I'm assuming, I don't know all my listeners, of course, but I'm assuming most of them are similar to me in that they're kind of, you know, now I'm 11 years into a career. Um, hopefully most of them have a, a 401k and, and, and things like that. Um, a lot of them, Probably I'm lucky not to have student loan debt, um, but I do have a, a decent amount of credit card debt because I'm very financially irresponsible. Well, what would you tell someone in that age range? They still got plenty of time uh, to set up their future retirement, uh, plenty of years of work ahead of them. Um, what would you tell that person they should be prioritizing as far as what they're doing? Is it paying off debt? Is it for 401k retirement or right. a combination or yeah so i think there's a lot there to kind of unpack and i'll try to do my best to unpack it all and if if there's uh, an area that you want to kind of delve further in by all means you know follow up with it with a question but you know the the important thing is and i i think the thing that i try to impress upon uh young folks and you know, we have a lot of young people that are clients of ours, either because their parents were clients and now they are, and we're trying to educate them and, you know, instill good financial habits, which is by far the most important thing. You know, most of our financial habits as people uh, are not typically learned in the classroom because there's really no track for that. Most of it is learned uh, through our experience with our parents and watching our grandparents and learning how their financial situation is. And in many cases, we replicate it. Um, so, you know, if, if you know that the family situation was not good, it's going to be that much more important that you focus on uh, having good financial habits because you're already hardwired to have bad financial habits. So it, it's important that you recognize that, that typically your habits are going to be a reflection of where you came from and, and uh, who you follow. Uh, you know, next is important thing is to have a budget you know you want to make sure that you have an indication and this is hard you know it's harder and easier than ever right it's harder from the standpoint of it's so easy to spend money these days as opposed to years past where you had to have cash and things of that nature um, but at the same time it's easier to track where your money's going because it's all electronically spent and you can see that so you want to have that budget and understand how much is coming in and how much is going out on a regular basis and see what you know avenues might be available to you to cut if potentially and you know one question we get well what should i cut out 
And, you know, that's not for me to answer, even if I'm working with somebody of that age, because to one person, if you tell them to cut out their Netflix account, that's going to be the most absurd thing ever because <laughs> they really enjoy and get a lot of joy out of uh, watching Netflix and movies versus somebody else. You may say, hey, well, you should cut your dining out budget. And they're like, well, I don't, you know, I don't care about movies, but I really enjoy eating out. Well, that's going to be a personal preference and you have to itemize that and look. So having a budget is very important. Number two is starting early. The earlier you can start investing and putting money away, it's less important where it goes and more important that you just do it. Um, you know, because of the time value of money and the ability of compounding, which I like to refer to as the eighth wonder of the world, the earlier you start, the better off you're going to be. Because if you start at 20 and you start socking away a good amount of money, by the time you're 40, you're going to have a sizable nest egg. And then when, you know, if you're having a family or, you know, you have now sending kids to college, you know, real expenses start coming into play, a mortgage, things of that nature, you might be able to at that point start pulling back on those retirement savings because you did such a great job starting at age 20 putting away. But if you don't start till 30 or 40 to start saving, you're going to be playing catch up because it makes it much more difficult. So the important thing is start early. And I like to subscribe to the um, richest man in Babylon philosophy. If you ever read that book, it kind of drives down the same um, message over and over, which is, you know, we're the most important things in our lives. Pay yourself first. We have a tendency to get paid, pay all the bills, see what's left over and then save. Uh, what I would recommend is you kind of turn that on its head and say, okay, listen, if I could save 10%, let me save 10%. And then when I put away the 10%, whether it be in my retirement account or wherever, then let me figure out how I'm going to allocate the 90%. Okay. Um, so I think that's important. And then, you know, I guess finally, or lastly, and then we could drill down on anything else if you want is, you know, take advantage of those retirement accounts first, right? Take care, you know, if you have the 401k, take advantage of it, put the money in. Make sure if the company's matching, make sure you're putting in at least what they're matching because you may be giving up free money. You know, if the company's matching 5% and you're putting in three, you're doing yourself a disservice because you could be getting 2% more from the company, put in the 5% and get that entire match. Um, if you don't have a 401k, if you have a side hustle or an independent contractor, 1099, there are retirement plans that you can set up for yourself that are similar to a 401k. If all else fails and those aren't available, then look at an IRA or a Roth IRA, see if those are available to you. And then worst case scenario, if you're not you know, eligible or able to participate in any of those, just open an account and start socking money away uh, because that's the most important thing uh, for the long run. And again, if you don't know what you're doing, look out and get a professional to at least help you or at least just, you know, buy some diversified ETF or something that's going to, you know, grow uh, according to the market and, uh, you know, over a long period of time do well. And when it comes to a point where you have a sizable amount, then look to, you know, hire an advisor and, and help guide you a little bit further. Gotcha. No, that's all good advice. And uh, I've never, uh, I don't think I've ever had a budget in my life. <laughs> which is which will shock you my parents were the most financially responsible people my mother was disabled for a decade she was bedridden not able to work um 
So it was a single-income household with four siblings. They had a budget. We, we didn't get what we wanted. We got an allowance, and we could save money if we wanted to buy things. Um, super good with money. Uh, me, and maybe it was a, a rebellious thing, even though I'm close with my parents, I go out. I'll, I'll give you a terrible example. I had a credit card limit increase of $6,000 which gave me $6,000 of spending money that I blew in one, one day. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not that stupid anymore. <laughs> this, was, this was while I was going through a divorce. I, that's the excuse okay. I like to give, but I was just not a responsible person. <laughs> but uh, it's, I, I, now I have two kids of my own, and they're 11 and 8, and I don't give them an allowance. If they want something, I pretty much pull it up on my phone and buy it instantly for them. Uh, never anything super expensive, but, you know, anything under 100 bucks, I pretty much provide for them immediately upon request. Uh, I should, um, from talking to you and hearing your advice, I'm guessing I should change that <laughs> so that they have a little more uh, responsibility. You have, to, you, have to, you have to teach them, you know, as far as what money means. You know, a couple of the stories that I share very frequently with, you know, with my family. I have, I have boys that are going to be 15 and 18 very soon. And, uh, you know, from a very young age and, you know, again, this might be just because of the industry I'm in or I don't know, maybe it comes hardwired also. You know, we, they had a uh, piggy bank. And I like sharing this because a lot of people aren't even aware they exist. And the piggy bank had three slots in it. And the three slots, instead of the one, which traditionally is in a piggy bank, the three slots were uh, spend, save, and charity. Mm. And, you know, we tried to encourage them to understand that a portion of the money that they're going to receive, they should spend and, you know, utilize for things that they want. And then they should save for things that they need or or, or looking to, uh, you know, acquire down the road. And then they should also think about, you know, helping others and giving to charity. So that was one lesson we started out uh, very young. The other thing is, you know, we started with them trying to pick companies that were interesting to them. So both my boys are big fans of Disney. So, you know, several years ago, they bought some shares at Disney and now they actually track the stock. Um, so that's another lesson. And then the third one was when they became old enough to start working, which in New York, where I'm located is 14, you could get your working papers. Uh, they each got jobs and essentially I made a deal with them that whatever they would put away in an IRA, a Roth IRA, we would basically reimburse them for that money. So both my boys since the age of 14, uh, obviously the 15-year-old has only done it once. My 18-year-old, this will be going on his fourth year doing it. Uh, basically $3,000 a year, he's been plugging away in his Roth IRA. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're teaching him. And, he, you know, he said recently, he looked at the account, and he's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe how much more money is in the account than what I put in. And, uh, you know, that gets them on the habit of saving. So, you know, it's just a matter of getting them in that habit of understanding, you know, what that money means. And when you're going to pull the trigger on Amazon or wherever you're making that purchase, you know, to understand that it's not something that just kind of magically gets paid. You know, dad goes to work, he gets a paycheck, it goes in the bank, he then you know, charges it to Amazon and then has to pay that bill. So there's a whole education process there that uh, you want to instill in the in, in your young folks. Uh, on the IRA, 
um, two questions. Is there is there a minimum age? And I know with it's tax uh, deductible, correct? If you contribute to. So to, let me answer your first question, and I'll answer the second one. So there is not necessarily a minimum age, but you have to have earned income to contribute to an IRA, whether it's a Roth or a regular. So you have to have earned income. So you have to be old enough in wherever you're located to work, get a paycheck, and get a W-2. As long as you can do that, and, and you know, I forget where recently I just heard, um, actually one of the, the folks that's involved in um, car Carson Group, which we're a partner firm for, our uh, our, our uh, Jamie uh, Hopkins, who's part of our advanced planning team, talked about you know whether or not you can have a three year old who uh, is on your books as an employee and starting putting money in an IRA. So you know the the uh, the jury's out on that. But the point is, as long as there's earned income, they can have an IRA. And what'll happen is it'll be a custodial IRA until they hit the age of majority. So you need a parent who's going to be overseeing the assets for the child. And then once they become the age of majority in the location that the account's open, then it'll become theirs. So as long as you have the earned income, you can have an IRA. Now, as far as the tax deductibility goes, there are mainly two types of IRAs out there. You have a traditional IRA and you have a Roth IRA. So the traditional IRA is what you're referring to. So if you, you know, if you satisfy certain requirements, like you don't have a retirement plan at work, you don't have a 401k, and your income is at a certain level, you may be eligible to get a tax deduction. So if you, you know, if you qualify for the tax deductible IRA. You could put in up to six thousand dollars this year in in 2021. Uh, so you put in that six thousand dollars, and it comes directly off as a tax deduction on your tax return, as if you earn six thousand less. Then that money grows. Okay, it'll grow tax deferred, and then when the time comes that you take it out in retirement, at that point you're going to be taxed on it as mm. if it's income at whatever your tax rate is at that time. The, the Roth IRA is a little bit different. So as long as you're eligible for that, the Roth IRA, you do not get a deduction for the money that you put in. Okay, so you take money that's already been taxed, you put that in the Roth IRA. It also grows tax, uh, uh, tax deferred. And as long as you satisfy the requirements of the Roth IRA, when you pull that money out in retirement, it's going to come out tax-free. You're never going to pay mm. a dime of tax on any of that growth. So if you put in 6000 and that 6000 grows to 100000 and in retirement you pull out that 100000 you're not going to pay taxes on that 94000 of growth. There's no taxes owed on that point. So, you know, the reality is who knows where tax rates will be 20, 30, 40 years down the road. Right. So, you know, really good rule of thumb is if you could do a Roth and you don't need a tax deduction today, do that. If you need a tax deduction today, do the IRA. Or if it works for you, maybe, uh, you know, straddle the two and put a little money in each. So when time comes for retirement, you have some money that's tax that's going to be taxable and some money that's going to be tax free. So you're not going to get hammered if rates are much higher than where they are uh, today. Interesting. And, and see, that's something someone my age should know, <laughs> but I did not. <laughs> well, yeah, listen, I, I don't say anybody should know anything because, again, um, you know, I'm a little um, biased because I've been in this since, uh, you know, my early 20s. So it's just been 
you know, absorbed over the last 20 plus years. And, uh, you know, I live it every day. And, you know, I, I think about often if I wasn't in this business, how I would handle my finances and hands down, I would have an advisor. There's no ifs, ands or buts about it. And um, I, I would definitely have an advisor, you know, for these reasons. Right. I mean, it seems like it could be a full time job learning and figuring out the investments, which is probably speaking for myself. When you have your own full time job, you don't want to spend uh, another 30, 40 hours a week. Although I do that with this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But this is more entertaining and I get to learn things. There you go. Yeah. Um, For sure. What is this kind of off the off the grid, but it popped into my head. What do you have any thoughts on cryptocurrency and whether I mean, I've I've heard uh, I've, I've invested little amount in cryptocurrency over the years when it was really cheap. So I've gotten, you know, 800 percent return on investment right now. Um and then there are, there's, I mean, obviously this goes further than just saying cryptocurrency. There's Bitcoin, which everyone knows. That's There's Ethereum and there's 22,000 other little cryptocurrency altcoins right. out there. Do you, have, do you have any thoughts on, is that something, diversification as far as like a savings or investment? Yeah, so, you know, that's one thing that, that's an area that quite frankly we don't, uh, we, we don't make direct recommendations about uh, cryptocurrency with clients or prospective clients. We will have conversations about it because it does come up and it, it's something that's, that's valid. I, I think that, you know, it's something that's new. There's some opportunity there. Um, there are a lot of different variations and versions. Um, and it's hard to tell who's going to be the winner and what's not going to be the winner. So... You know, I think as far as I'm concerned, you know, personally, I don't own any direct cryptocurrency, um, whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing. I just don't know who's going to be and what's going to be the winner at this point. I think that there is some valid uses for it. How it ultimately ends up getting used, I, I don't know. Um, I think that, you know, from my standpoint, I think a lot of the value and the potential is in the, um, in the blockchain itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the tools of using the blockchain to document ownership of, uh, you know, especially like land ownership, for example, in areas, remote areas where it's hard to get information and things like that. There's definitely uses for all of this. The question is, I, I think even though it's been around for a while, I think it's still relatively new and it's hard to tell what's going to be the biggest winner. So I, I think my approach to it is you know a cautious optimism it's not certainly something that i would put all of my assets in but you know if somebody were to say to me hey i'm going to put in a percent or or you know a a small allocation there i'm not adverse to it and i i couldn't say no it's probably not a bad idea it's just you know who knows you know if you pick bitcoin over ethereum or any others who who knows how that's going to shake out you know 15 20 years from now i I don't know but there's definitely some valid uses there i I think the jury's still out as far as how it's all going to shake out though gotcha yeah no and i uh and and you can tell me if you think it's crazy i maybe it's a, a doomsday uh prepper kind of thing but i i always thought you want to have at least some gold and now I'm I'm thinking the same about crypto. If the dollar completely collapses one day, people who have even a little bit of crypto are going to be 
better off and people who have just a little bit of gold are going to be better off not that i have tons of money invested in either far far from it um yeah i, I think what you need is in order to, for that to really work is you need you know and i think gold's an example right there are many places that you could walk into with a gold bar and say hey i want to pay my bill yeah um you know i think uh bitcoin and and some of the cryptocurrencies are certainly moving uh in that direction more quickly than gold ever has um so yeah. the question is in order to make that argument effective you really need to have a, a more widely adopted uh acceptance and, and uh you know ability to receive and transact in that in that currency which you know we're moving in that direction whether we get there or not you know who knows do you, do you think with uh and i should have pulled this up but i i honestly didn't think to ask you this um until now, uh, so I don't have the statistic, but some exorbitant percentage of dollars were printed over the past year. I, I want to say it was somewhere around 30% of the of American dollars were printed in the stimulus and all that stuff. Do you think, just as far as the stability of the value, do you think there's reason to be concerned or do you think that's something that kind of just will work itself out because i i mean i imagine most countries are printing money right now yeah i i think where you know uh, where people get a little bit confused and you know maybe it's a lack of understanding or education i i don't know what it is but you know there's this perception that having a deficit okay is a is a really bad thing you know just the word kind of has this connotation that it's that it's bad but at the same time people feel surplus is a good thing and you know that's kind of what we're talking about here with the printing of money the deficit you know we're accumulating that and the reality is neither one of them is all that great from an economic standpoint if you remember economics 101 if you had the opportunity to take that really really the best place to be is in an equilibrium state right for for every dollar that gets spent there's a dollar that's saved and and you have that equilibrium effect that's really your ideal state so the reality is that you know looking back at the late 90s you know which people always compare you know the deficit of today oh well we had the surplus back then what happened the reality is that surplus back then was really a sign that there were inefficiencies in the financial markets as well because we were accumulating all this money that possibly could have been put to better use and, and, and uh, utilized in a different way to benefit you know everybody for that matter. So deficit is not necessarily, um, you know, deficit and surplus are equally as bad. Um, but to go back to your question, you know, I, I think that it's something that, you know, we're in it we're in a unique time and we have been for a little while here and really the only way out of it is by doing what we're doing so the question is how is this going to affect future generations how is this going to affect things down the road you know there are arguments on either side whether we've done too much or too little and the reality is we have to live with what was done and we have to figure it out and you know whether that's leading to higher taxes or whether that's leading to other avenues um, you know that's going to be you know something that's going to be have have to be solved in the years to come otherwise um, you know you're going to have other events taking place that uh, may be unintended consequences of what we've done over the last several years understood that 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 does make sense and I do um, before I, I segue over to the the other stuff I wanted to talk about it fascinates me 
one thing I said since I was in school, now I should have taken it upon myself to, to do it, to educate myself, but uh, I never took any class in high school uh, that taught you about credit cards, mortgages, car loans, uh, insurance. I did take a class in high school about insurance, actually, which is beneficial because that's actually the career I went into. So I actually had a leg up. Um, why isn't that something, balancing a checkbook, I know checkbooks are not typically, I don't even own any checks, everything's right. online now, but but uh, why is, it baffles me as to why that's not in education and it, and what the what possible rationale there is, and you probably, not not that you would probably know, but how, how crazy is it that that's not just a standard part of a, of a senior year high school or, or every year high school where you just yeah. learn your economics, personal economics? It's, it's insane. It's kind of, it's really crazy if you, if you think about it, especially if you think about uh, the amount of debt and the, the amount of financial strife that goes on and you know, listen, having those classes, as you suggest, I, I can't say that it would solve all these problems because it, it wouldn't. You know, you'd still have people that would still go down the wrong path, even if they were educated. But, you know, it, it would at least put people in a mindset that they would understand what they were doing and how they were doing it. So it is absolutely insane to me that they don't have any kind of even baseline level of this. And it's left up to uh, parents and individuals to kind of educate themselves. And, you know, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier uh, in our conversation, for instance, student loan debt, you know, that's one of the biggest problems we have going on right now because people are really mortgaging their futures through, you know, for education. And I, I talk about it all the time. I think you have a number of different uh, culprits here. I think one is you have the schools because uh, I think the schools are as much as you want to think that they're out for your best interest, they're not. They're out for their best interest. They're a business. They're very well-run oiled machines and they're looking to make profit and revenue. Um, and they're a culprit. I think you also have a culprit of uh, parents uh, you know, and I'm going through this with my own son, right? We want to make our kids happy. And unfortunately, I've seen it too many times where, you know, a client's child got into a state university that's going to run them $30,000 a year versus, which is in New York, versus, you know, going to University of Miami or some other location down south that's going to be $50,000 per year. And, you know, because the kid wants to go watch a football game every weekend, they go to University of Sunshine and now they're paying twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a year. And they're not doing the research. You know, people do more research when they buy a car than when they research the education. So that's another factor. Then you have the government where they're giving out loans like they're candy to people and a lot of people don't understand what the terms and conditions are, when the interest starts accumulating, when they're gonna have to start paying it. Uh, and then, you, you know, you have the situation where you're taking on this debt. So you have a lot of different, uh, you know, factors at work here. And not that that education piece that you speak of will solve all of that. But if people really understood what the impact of each of these avenues were, uh, I think you'd have a better situation than we're, we're seeing right now, for sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm fortunate. Uh, I got, I not only got a full ride to I went to USF, which is down here in Tampa and St. Petersburg. Not only got a full ride, I actually got paid about twenty five grand in excess scholarships to go there. 
Um, so I, I was able to, when I got out of college, afford a, an expensive wedding for a 23 year old, which that was a, that was a bad investment. It was but, really expensive and, wedding. And, and also a house. So I, I have over $200,000 equity in this house because I was able to buy it at the bottom of the market, just luck, um, right. because I went to college and I had a job and I also got paid <laughs> for four right. years. But I've told my kids, and I don't know how available scholarships are going to be, but I told them, you, you know, if you can't get scholarships to go to college, don't go to college. If, you're, right. if, you're, if you can't earn the scholarship, you can't earn the money to go to college. I would recommend not, and, and frankly, I think one thing that always bothered me, because I started as a journalism major in college, uh, and journalism's the perfect example of, they don't tell you in high school when you say uh, you want to be a journalist, how little money they make. You're, so you, you, I went to class for a year and a half with kids who probably racked up 150000 in student loan debt for a career that you know, it's going to take six, seven years if you're good to earn that kind of money. Right. Yeah, uh, no, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. And actually, we, uh, uh, on, on my show, uh, The Midland Money Mindset, I just recently had a guest uh, by the name of Marla Brady, um, who is um, basically a consultant who works with uh, high school kids, college, and, and transitioning adults, uh, and helps them identify their... Uh, their roles and where they want to go and where they want to end up for this exact reason because you want to be able to figure out what you're good at what your propensity is towards and you know is it going to provide the livelihood that you're expecting because you know I listen I know people through friends and family that you know accumulated you know 200 $250,000 in debt for their college education, like you said, and you know they're probably doing one of the most righteous jobs in the world as a teacher, and it's going to be virtually impossible for them to pay off that debt. It's it's crazy. It's crazy. Right? Yeah. Teach, teaching's another. Thing. <laughs> it's nuts, you know, and it's it's honestly it's shameful, you know, that uh, we don't educate folks and and they understand what they're getting into and what they're signing on the dotted line for. Uh, when they go get that education and to your point you know college is not for for everybody you know there are plenty of kids who are 15 16 17 that would benefit from taking two years off kind of finding their way and finding what they enjoy and then pinpointing the education to that rather than just going to college and being on the five or six or seven year plan because that's how you rack up a lot of debt and uh, it makes it very difficult to come out from under that and that's what, uh, and and not to not to at all get political with it, but that's what scares me when people talk about the minimum wage. I think exactly what you said. People going to high school, take a couple years and and work some jobs, but they're probably not going to be worth fifteen dollars an hour. So they're not going to, uh, or whatever the minimum. You know, it seems like if they make it fifteen, people are going to want twenty five. We, you know, I think that's a slippery yeah, I mean, there slope. There are a lot but, of trades up here. You know that uh, you know you could become a tradesman, and you're not going to be making a killer salary early on. But there's definitely that opportunity to grow and get into a really you know six figure paying job after a period of time without having a college education. And that's a great path for a lot of people. And you know if that's the way you want to go and it makes sense for you, 
hey, go at it. You know, not everybody has to go and get that four-year degree. And I think there are a lot of opportunities, a lot of companies that are now, you know, moving in that direction where, you know, if you have a skill and you learn something and you love it, you can do it without having that college degree and be very successful over the long run. Yeah, and and, and yeah, just from, from personal experience, I worked for all throughout college, I worked for a major league baseball team and uh, I didn't get, I went into insurance because there's more money there. <laughs> uh, the only thing I benefited from while I was making minimum wage, which was six sixty-seven or something. And then I think I got bumped to uh, $9 an hour by the time I was done there in five years. But um, I, I gained, I learned how to act around adults. <laughs> I matured. Uh, you know, I learned how uh, working under a deadline uh, is. And that those are all skills that prepared me for an actual job. And then, uh, you know, telling stories behind the scenes of a Major League Baseball team also made my first job interview go very smoothly because I was <laughs> <laughs> talking to a fan of the team. So had a little, uh, <laughs> had a little leg up. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I wanted to talk to you, uh, and my show's kind of gone into this topic a couple times. Uh, it's a, it's a comedy themed podcast mostly. Um, and, uh, comedians obviously have substantial mental health issues, almost every one of them, uh, <laughs> where, where, uh, uh, suicide is, is a topic we talk, and I know uh, you are on the, it's the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. You're on... Cor- correct. I sit on their national board. Gotcha. Um, so I wanted to touch on that. Um, I guess uh, I'll let you give me the, the backstory of why why you got involved uh, with that. Sure. Yeah, so Jeff, I, uh, you know, back in 2004, I lost my brother-in-law, Keith Milano. He, uh, he died by suicide, unfortunately. He was suffering from bipolar disorder and, um, you know, just couldn't find a solution that would, would help him. And, uh, you know, uh, upon his death, my wife and I really, you know, me personally, I did never experience somebody who had mental illness who ultimately died from it you know to me it was something oh you know you get some help you get some medication eventually you get well i never experienced anybody who died by suicide as a result of their you know you know poor mental health and uh it was a real eye-opener for me and you know my wife and i were you know by my brother-in-law's side all along the way helping him as much as we could um, and my wife made a, uh, a promise to him and said, hey, we're not going to let you go quietly. And, you know, we're going to tell everybody who we can your story because he really suffered from the stigma that was associated with mental health. And, you know, keep in mind, this was back in 2004. I think we've made a lot of strides here in 2021. Uh, up until this point, I think things are better. I think we have a long way to go, but definitely things are better when you have, you know, professional athletes uh, in all the major sports. You have uh, stars coming out talking about their mental health and finding their way and having successful, uh, you know, uh, ways of, of overcoming it. I think that's really, really helpful to, uh, you know, lowering the stigma and having other people seek help. But, you know, the stigma was something that really he struggled with. And, and we made it a point that we were going to have that conversation with as many people as we can. We weren't going to brush it under the rug, so to speak, like, uh, many people did back then. And, uh, one of the things I looked at is at that, that time, I was very, uh, you know, my wife and I were always charitably inclined. 
I lost my mom at a very young age. Uh, she died at the age of 47. Mm. Uh, she was sick for about 13 years with breast cancer before oh. that. So that was an avenue that was very important to me. And, and my point here is when my brother-in-law died from suicide, I started looking and, and looking at the charitable endeavors I had with breast cancer and how many people died from it. And uh, the the truth was at that time, back in 2004, about 36, 37,000 women uh, died each year from breast cancer. Astonishingly, you know, kind of surprisingly to me, I looked at the suicide numbers and we lost about 36, 37,000 people to suicide. It was oh, wow. almost identical in nature as far as the number of people we lost. And I started looking and saying, well, you know, we lose 36, 37,000 to each of these, you know, great causes, yet breast cancer is getting funding in the billions and mental health and suicide prevention was really getting funding in the millions. And I was like, there's a disconnect here. So we wanted to tell a story. We wanted to have an impact. So we, we shifted our focus and became involved with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Uh, we ultimately created a fund there called the Keith Milano Memorial Fund, uh, which, you know, your listeners can find his whole story at KeithMilano.org. Um, and we, we started that fund and we started raising money. And over the next last, uh, you know, 17 years or so, we've raised in excess of $1.7 million for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. We've done that in really two ways. The, the first 10 years or so was through a golf outing that we ran locally here on Long Island with his former employer. And then that kind of ran its course and we shifted. And over the last like eight or nine years, uh, my wife is a very uh, voracious reader and has ties to the romance author community. Uh, and an author approached us about eight or nine years ago and said, hey, I'm writing a new book. I'm releasing it in May, which happens to be Mental Health Awareness Month. Would you mind if I donated a portion of my proceeds to your brother's fund? I was like, yeah, sure, that'd be great. Well, you know, it ended up snowballing into a situation where we now have 30 to 40 authors that donate a portion of their proceeds oh, wow. for the month of May to my brother-in-law's fund. And the rom romance author community has been so uh, supportive and helpful to the cause and getting the word out. Um, so they've been hugely supportive and instrumental in us reaching that $1.7 million plus number. So that's one way. And then ultimately, I guess about 12 years ago or so, I became involved with the AFSP and uh, took a role on their national board. I sit on their finance and investment committee. And, uh, you know, we're really just trying to, they're the, they're the leader in the suicide prevention space and really just trying to get the word out, raise awareness, lower stigma and help people who are, you know, affected by suicide, whether it's uh, a family member or they've had thoughts themselves or, or poor mental health, uh, you know, on their own, if you will. Right. No. And that's um, the... Uh to be honest, until, and this was like a month ago, uh, I had a, a comedian, his name is Frank King, and he's done multiple TED Talks about suicide prevention and, and stuff like that. Uh, I had him on, and that was the first time I kind of publicly admitted that uh, I almost committed suicide. And uh, it the, the amazing part about it was I got several people to, who listened to it, you know, some close friends, some more distant people I haven't spoken to. They listened to that podcast and they, they text me kind of in shock. Um, uh -huh. 
you know, and and that's uh, the I, I'm, I'm you said it, destigmatizing it, where people, uh, me personally, I, I'm I've always thought of it almost this way: as I'm I'm six foot two, I'm two hundred fifty pounds, I'm a pretty big guy. Uh, I don't want to come off as as weak. I mean, and and realizing it's not a weakness; it's just it is a, a part of. It's a part. The way I think Frank described it is, it, it can even be used as a tool, to an extent. Not you know, it, it's not ideal, but you can still. It's there. The idea of of suicide is is in your head. Uh, figure out a way, uh, and he he's done it by making money. You know, mixing it with comedy and and do it. You know, doing that. Um, it's uh, it's really sad, and I think and what he said. You might know the stats more on this. Is it it tends to be a kind of middle-aged adult male thing and i think that's part of it is not wanting to although i've i've read that unfortunately teenage numbers are skyrocketing as well well i mean listen uh, well number one is i'm glad you're still here i'm glad you found whatever help or whatever you know you needed to uh to stick around and i appreciate that and you know I think that if you want to learn more about the stats, you know, I would suggest go to AFSP.org, which is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's website. We have all the numbers there. Uh, you know, the, the reality is there are, you know, depending, you know, what's the old saying? Statistics never lie, but liars use statistics, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, right? So, you know, if you look at the senior population, believe it or not, which many people don't think of, that's actually on a, a very steep incline in regards to suicide. Um, so I, it depends on what you're looking at. So I, I'm not sure if that's exactly right or not. Uh, the reality is uh, the numbers in 2019, which were reported at the end of 2020, actually showed a reduction in the suicide rate from 2018 to 2019. Mm. And the first reports that we've seen in 2021 from a few states are indicating that actually 2020 was also on a decline in those specific areas. We won't know what happened as a total until the end of 2021 when they report the 2020 numbers. I, I think that to a degree, a lot of why we think the numbers are going up is because it's being talked about more. It's being reported about more. I don't know that the number of, uh, of cases are going up. It's just that we're talking about more cases. So it sounds like it's going up. The important thing is, like you found in your case, you know, there, there's no shame in asking for help. And honestly, you know, the, as I mentioned earlier, the money that we've raised and we've supported a number of projects with that money, that's all great. But the most rewarding thing that uh, my wife and I have done is we've become uh, quasi resources for people because we've been so vocal and they know that we've talked on the topic and we're very open. So people will come to us and say, hey, you know, I'm having an issue or my brother or my sister or my cousin, can you help me? And we've become this resource for them. And, you know, in some cases, we know for a fact that we've helped save lives. And to me, that's more important than any dollar I could have raised or anything else I could have done. That is the most meaningful part of the work that I'm doing in the suicide space. And, you know, listen, literally last night, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, somebody who I know through the business community who I haven't seen in quite some time put a post on Facebook. And uh, it was kind of disturbing. I, I was mm -hmm. concerned for him. I immediately 
literally, I didn't have, I looked up, I didn't have a cell phone number for him because I was going to call him on his cell. So the only way I could get in touch with him is I dialed him through Facebook Messenger and, and rang his phone that way. He didn't end up picking up. So then I ended up sending him a message. And then I looked at who his friends were that were a mutual acquaintance to me. And I found somebody that I knew really well. And I called them up and I said, hey, did you see the, he goes, yeah, I saw the post. I said, he goes, I'm calling him in like 10 minutes. I'm like, all right, you call him and then let me know what his cell phone number is because I want to call him the next day. So, you know, my point is from all of this is these are the things that we should be doing as people looking out for our friends. You know, if if you, you have to get we all have to get better at understanding and looking for signs, uh, because like in your case, you had those people that were like, oh, man, I had no idea. Now, if they started reconciling and, and, and being a little bit more mindful and careful and looking more closely, they may have seen some of it subtly, but they may have seen of it. Not in every case, you know, but in, in many cases, there are things that you could kind of pick up and we all have to get better at that, number one. And number two, we have to feel comfortable enough, like what I did last night, and make that call. I haven't talked to this guy in six years probably, but you know what, it didn't matter. He was in need, he was in crisis. Doesn't matter, you know. That call may, you know, may save his life. The guy who we knew in common, who called him, may be the thing that he needed at that particular time. And I think we just all have to be a little bit more mindful and 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 look out for each other to that degree, and not be concerned that if we make that call, that uh, you know we're minimizing them or ourselves. We have to feel comfortable having that conversation, whether you're a man, woman, however you want to identify that, that's fine. We should be making those calls and, and feeling comfortable doing it. Agreed. Agreed. And then, uh, and, and from the flip side, you, you hope they accept the, the, the help. Uh, but that we have no control over, right? right? <laughs> you know, we have no control over that part, but we want to do our best. Right. And then hope right. that we, uh, hope that they, you know, see it. Maybe they don't see it right at that moment. Maybe, maybe in that moment they push us off. But maybe two days later, after they've had some time to think about it and let it sink in, maybe and hopefully they'll call us back and say, "Hey, you know, I thought about what do I need to do to do that? You know, or can you help me connect with those people or whatever? You know, hopefully, you know, it'll sink in at some point." Right, and and I uh, I can tell you you're you're correct about the phone call aspect, and and sadly from experience, uh, I know a phone call saved my life. Uh, I know Frank I mentioned earlier he made a phone call that saved his life um, because in that mindset the person I talked to convinced me or. or Trying to verbalize this might be difficult, but I'll, <laughs> I, hopefully it's helpful if I do. But uh, I knew that if I did it, the person I was talking to would be broken. They would feel like they were at fault. So in my head, I said, I'll put it off a week. That way they don't blame themselves. They, they stopped it. I'll put it off a week. By the time a week came around, I felt better. I mean, not, you know, not it doesn't go away, but it's, it's substantially, you know, that person. And I reached out to other people and I talked to so many people over that week that when a week came, it wasn't even an idea. It wasn't a thought. Um, so yeah, I mean, just to, to kind of support what you said, a phone call can literally save a life and I'm sure it saved, I would imagine millions of people have been saved by just somebody reaching out to ask if someone needs help. 
Yeah, and you know, if you don't have or feel comfortable reaching out to that person, you know, meaning you're the person that's in crisis, you know, the next best thing you can do is call the, uh, you know, the suicide hotline, which is 800-273-8255. Or you could also text TALK, T-A-L-K, to 741-741. And the thing here is where people get kind of confused is they think that they have to be on the precipice of doing something harmful to themselves. That's not the case. You could call if you feel uneasy and you're having those thoughts you can even call it you know whether it's you or somebody else they'll walk you through what you need to do for that person so it could be very helpful and eye-opening for you if you just reach out to them they can help you get because they're trained professionals i'm just a regular guy who unfortunately lost his brother-in-law and sharing my experiences uh, that i've seen uh, through him and through the people that we've had conversations with over the last 17 years Gotcha. Well, it's noble work, and I will definitely link all of the stuff we talked about, KeithMilano.org, AFSP.org, and uh, the phone numbers and all that stuff in, uh, in the show notes. Um, you know, again, you're, you're, what, what the organization, what you do, it, it definitely saves lives and uh, me, means a lot to me uh, personally as well. Um, Appreciate that. Where can... Uh, where should people go to find you for uh, financial uh, advice and things like that? Where where can they find yeah. you? Yeah, so we have a lot of great content on our website, mitlinfinancial.com, M-I-T-L-I-N, financial.com. And, uh, you know, we also have a podcast called The Midland Money Mindset, which is, uh, quite frankly, it's not a lot to do with money, uh, more to do with, uh, you know, things around money. And uh, I see, you know, I know the listeners can't see this, but uh, I'll tell them I see you're wearing a Tampa Bay Lightning hat. <laughs> um, I'm, a, we're a huge, I'm a huge hockey fan. Uh, I just had the opportunity yesterday for my show, which will be going live soon. I interviewed the uh, owner of the New York Islanders and part of the ownership group of the Seattle Kraken, which is a new team coming to the league. And we actually have, you'll know this, we have an episode coming up soon uh, where I got to interview Manon Rayom, who was the first female goaltender to ever play, or first female to ever sign an NHL contract and played for the Tampa Bay Lightning. So, uh, you know, a lot of hockey uh, stuff on our uh, podcast, a lot of mindset, a lot of entrepreneurship, just really cool people and sharing their stories, kind of like your show here. Uh, just dovetail off that. So those are really the two two main places, the podcast and, and my website, and I'm all over social media, so you can always reach out and try to connect with me there on uh, every platform except for TikTok at the moment. <laughs> I, I, I don't have TikTok either. <laughs> I, I don't think I'd be able to, able to figure it out. So <laughs> I'll leave the TikTok to the people who don't really have that many credentials and want to spew financial advice, so just don't... <laughs> Don't, don't follow those people, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, Larry, uh, I, I learned a lot. I'm inspired to actually make a budget, and uh, I, I think I'm going to uh, change the way I uh, parent a little bit as far as money, too. So, uh, I, I, And obviously, we talked about some even more important stuff than money. So uh, yeah. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, and uh, hopefully it wasn't too uh, too too bad for you. <laughs> 
I love this stuff, Jeff. So anytime you want to, you know, anytime you want to have me, I'm here. I love sharing the the story and uh, having conversations with good people. So I I appreciate the time. I appreciate you having me on here. I'm very thankful and grateful that you've gotten the help uh, that you needed to uh, to stick around. And you know, hopefully, we can do this again in a, another few years because uh, we want to do it. So thank you for that. Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks again, Larry. Awesome. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Uh, Thank Larry for coming on. He was a very uh, educational guest. And I learned a few things. I think I'm going to, maybe for the first time in my life, try to create a budget. And even more so, I think what I'm going to do is something similar to what he talked about with my kids. I think I'm going to give them a salary contingent upon doing some chores a generous salary, um, and let them budget. If they want to save, if they want to spend, uh, and uh, maybe I'll I'll throw in a little charitable aspect as well. At least uh, you know, ten percent or something. That's that's what the church says to give, right? So uh, I'll toss that around a little bit. Um, the stuff we talked about at the end, obviously, with the suicide stuff, all the links are below. And if you are the charitable type, I think those are honorable places to donate money. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, kind of, as he kind of touched on, it's something that affects everyone. Uh, I mean, all age groups, all genders uh, deal with suicidal thoughts and making them more comfortable to come out and say it and get help is uh vital for things getting better especially with as messed up as most people are mentally with everything that's happened over the past year uh be nice to other people that's another thing i i like to live by uh maybe don't scream at someone for not wearing a mask uh maybe Try to be nice about it. I don't know. Just uh, <laughs> just treat people the way you'd want to be treated. And uh, I don't think anyone likes to be violently, uh, whether it's verbal or physical, I don't think anyone likes to be violently addressed. So anyways, I am uh, running out to do an open mic tonight at Coconuts. Uh, it will not be tonight for those listening to this podcast because... Uh, that will have been in the past. So hopping that gold-plated DeLorean uh, into the future again. <laughs> Anyways, uh, if you like what I'm doing, again, I'd love if you'd subscribe, share with a friend. As I said last time, that's the most effective way for a podcast audience to grow. Uh you know, please leave me feedback. I'd love to hear from you. I know last time I kind of did a deep dive into suicide, I had a lot of personal feedback, stuff that's not things to read on the podcast, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I love hearing from people who get anything uh, out of the podcast. And if you hate what I'm doing, I'd love you to message me or tweet at me too. So maybe I can change things. Maybe. We'll see. So, anyways, until next time, peace.